Well, we are back for a midweek Bible class. It's going to be very different this time. If you've noticed, it's 1 Corinthians 14, part 3. The reason is I get a lot of email asking me to address the issue of women in the church and, and women's roles in the church. There's been an awful lot of pain about this through the years. And if you could just see my inbox, but there are people who would say, I don't care what your inbox says, this is what God says. And they go to 1 Corinthians 14, where we went last week for part two, and then they go to 1 Timothy 2 in particular. And so this is going to be the second Wednesday in a row we deal with this issue, but we are not going to be in Corinthians. Uh, we're actually going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, since that's the other hammer verse. Uh, or passage that is used to silence women and in, in many, many churches, not even allow them to uh, pass out bulletins or make announcements or what's going on. Well, I hope that I opened your mind a little bit and piqued your curiosity a little bit last week. This week, we're going to look at that other passage. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and they, they zero in on a couple of there. In verses 8 through 15 is where the bulk of this is. And they will say, well, there, he says, I don't allow a woman to teach a man. I don't allow a woman to have authority over a man. And as we brought up last week, some of the early founders of the religious tribe in which I was raised believed that women could and did do everything up to preaching and mission work. But the ones that got a hold of the printing presses, the ones who got a hold of the periodicals that went out, like David Lipscomb, did not believe that a man could work for a woman or have a woman over him in business. He did not feel that women had uh, any right to do that. In fact, preached and wrote that women could not have authority over uh, men in the political realm or in the business realm. That's pretty radical, and there's no biblical warrant for this at all. But nobody gets everything perfect. I think we can all agree there. But that caused a tremendous amount of pain through the years that is still continuing. And I'm going to address a little bit of that today. Uh, but mainly, I just want to address something about 1 Timothy 2. People go there as they go to 1 Corinthians 14. But 1, uh, 1 Timothy 2 has a little bit more power for them for a couple of reasons. One, it's a slightly longer section by a few words, and neither of these are long sections. And it is it seems to be pretty harsh. Um, and I would say it, it, it's because it really was harsh. They also go there because 1 Corinthians 14, that text has a lot of questions about it. As I said last week, in manuscripts we have, we find it all over the place not necessarily where it is in that chapter in our modern Bibles. But, as I reminded you, that doesn't mean we ignore it because I don't know of any ancient manuscript where it isn't in there somewhere. So we don't have that issue to explain away in First Timothy chapter 2. What we have to do, though, is ask a really important question. Are you selecting that particular few lines out of 1 uh, Timothy 2. 
And are you using that as absolutely literal law for all time? Well, you don't do the rest of First Timothy 2 that way. Oh, yeah, I know. Because um, in verse 8, for example, uh, and by the way, I'm going to be moving around. You'll hear papers rustling. And the reason you'll hear them is because there are papers rustling. Uh, I hope that doesn't bother you too much. In verse 8, uh, we are to pray everywhere with our hands lifted up. I've asked, I don't know how many ministers, do you do that? And almost none of them in my particular tribe say that they do. I asked, does your congregation raise their hands when they pray? No. In fact, some of them are very, very nervous about anybody doing any display of raising hands. Now, for some of you in the vast majority of Christian tribes, you're going, what? It's a, it's a, it's a long story. But I think it really all comes down to there is a fear of sliding into Pentecostalism and emotionalism. And our, our worship was very regimented, very decently and in order. And dis emotional displays were, were not encouraged except for anger from the pulpit. And at times, an emotional, almost tearful, or an angry, fearful, threatening, that could come during the invitation songs. If you don't know what those are, I'm, I'll, I'll send me an email and I'll put it in one of our question and answer videos, okay? But they, they would say, no, 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 that raising holy hands, what that really means is that we are to be holy people so that when we pray, we our hands are not dirty um, spiritually. Wow. Well, first of all, I, I, I'm, I agree with you in the main that that's what we can take from that passage. I agree with you that it is not a law that we are to raise our hands. It is not even God's preferred posture. We covered that on a few Monday mornings ago. He didn't have a preferred posture. So I agree with you there. My problem is, why are you willing to move that one completely off the table and say that was cultural, that was for a particular time in a particular place. Timothy was in Ephesus and they had a particular culture issue, but they also had some cultural norms. And so he was just working off those cultural norms. I agree with all of that, but why then do you think he stopped doing that when he got down to a passage talking about women teaching and instead switched into a law from all time. By the way, in the rest of the passage, there are things such as don't wear fancy clothes, don't wear expensive clothes, don't wear expensive jewelry. Uh, women are not to do fancy things with their hair so that they show off with that. There are churches that hold that as binding upon them and their women um, they're women. That sounds awful, doesn't it? The women in those churches uh, are not allowed to wear jewelry. They're not allowed to wear makeup. They're not allowed to cut their hair or do anything fancy with their hair. Um, I believe that every one of them will allow them to wrap it into a form of a ponytail or to a form of a bun, but otherwise it's straight down. And I can be corrected. Patrick at rsafeharbor.com 
if you are, are in one of these churches. Uh, church of God does this a lot, but there are different variations of the Church of God, so I can't speak for all of them. Point being, most of us look at that and say, well, you're not to go overboard. And once again, I find myself in agreement with you. We are not to go overboard. And that's what it means. That a woman can you know, make up her hair or the, her clothes or her jewelry. She can make herself pretty. Uh, God is the author of beauty. And I have no problem with uh, men or women wanting to do as much as they can to be pretty without becoming full-blown peacocks. How about that? Without letting that be your glory, without letting that be uh, your identifier and your meaning, because our meaning is not found in those things. And that's what Paul is saying. So don't go overboard. I have been to many churches where they will not let women do anything. But the women are wearing jewelry, which is fine. And they're wearing nice clothes, which is fine. And their, their hair looks pretty, which is wonderful. But I, I'm looking, I'm saying, same chapter, guys. And women, I hope you're not getting nervous because you're, you may be thinking, all right, if Patrick really pushes them, then they're going to apply all these laws onto the women. It's never happened at all because there are other laws in this chapter. If, if, if chapter two is a law for all time, all cultures, there are a lot of other things in chapter two which the ministers do not want to do and do not want to teach. The praying here, by the way, could be audible um, or might be silent. The text is not clear. But if women are prohibited from praying aloud, in the assembly, that would contradict 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 through 16. And again, the way people try to get around that is say, that's not in the assembly. But it is circular reasoning. Why do you say that's not in the assembly? Well, because women are not allowed to speak in the assembly. Well, why do you say that? Because this passage. Okay. But that was written by the same guy that over here said, when women are praying and when women are prophesying. And he says that more than once. He also, as we saw, brings that up in 1 Corinthians 13. He brings, um, Peter brought it up in the first sermon preached after the ascension of Jesus. Whenever he quotes the prophet Joel, not once, but more than once saying, your sons and daughters will prophesy. That means to preach. And he said, that has come true as of this day. And again, People will yell, but that's not in the assembly. You can't say that. You're making huge assumptions. You're assuming that a culture in Corinth is the same as a culture in Ephesus, and you would be incredibly wrong. If you want to know how deeply culture affects message, read any one of John Walton's books. Now, you're not going to read them fast, but you don't have to be an expert to get what he's talking about. The Lost World of Genesis 2 and 3. The Lost World of Genesis 1. The Lost World of Scripture. Read any of those John Walton books, all right? And I don't get a kickback from Amazon. The praying here, people say, but it says silence. It does. But the word silence that's used there, the Greek word, only occurs two other places in the New Testament. 
And <clears throat> sorry, Second Thessalonians three twelve. It doesn't mean. It means, have a quiet spirit. And that's how it is translated. That word means, have a quiet spirit. The other place it comes upon is in Acts 22, verse 2, where a hush came over the assembly as the crowd focused on Paul's speech. There are words in the Greek for absolute silence. This isn't one of them. Not in Corinthians and not here. Segato is not used. Paul knows how to use the word. It isn't here. And in the teaching pastoral epistles of Timothy and Titus, the word refers to a, a special form of teaching. It's an authoritative teaching. When it says, I don't allow a woman to teach over a man, it is, um, it is a teaching forcefully. Um, it, is a, it is a taking of authority by another, uh, rather from another, without adequate cause or reason. In other words, you know, standing up in the assembly and, and interrupting a minister and saying, wait a minute, I've got some questions, or uh, don't listen to this guy, I've got something to say. He's, he's trying to get the Ephesian women not to do that. Does that mean Ephesian, Ephesian women could not get up, pray, or teach? No. It has to be done, as Paul uses, in another form, decently and in order. In fact, this speaking for the church thing that is mentioned in 1 Timothy 2, uh, there are three passages in these, two, these three epistles where that same phrasing is used. Two of them refer to false teachers. One of them is here. And it's not talking then about, about speaking aloud. It is talking about speaking at the wrong time or speaking the wrong thing. I know it seems a bit confusing, but why were the women singled out here? Well, it seems that they may have fallen prey to a, an idea and a teaching which had become very widespread in Ephesus. If you look at uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, for example, verses 6 and 7, teachers were uh, told, you know, don't be one of those women that goes from house to house leading other w women astray, and don't be one of those that's causing trouble among the widows. There, um, and, and again, so many books to refer you to here. In the early years of Christian life, the existence of the church, there were massive amounts of false movements that started, false teaching. We know some of them because they were big enough and powerful enough that councils were called to deal with them, whether it is Marcion and his complete rejection of uh, most of the Jewish books in scripture and his claim that the God of the Old Testament was a bad God and the God of the New Testament was somebody different. That didn't take long for that teaching to go. And in Ephesus, where they were used to worshiping a woman god named Dianus or Artemis, uh, they also had women that were in charge of these temples. It's going to be a while for them to learn how to go from pagan temple worship to Jewish Christian worship. At this time, still very Jewish. 
Gentiles were in there in Acts 15, as you, we've already seen, if you follow the Monday morning messages, uh, has made it very plain that Gentiles get to be Gentiles and worship in Gentile ways. But not when it begins to break up the assembly and disturb the assembly. Now, if a woman preaches and she's preaching the truth and she preaches in love, then that's not disturb, disrupting the assembly if we've asked her to do so. If they ask me to preach, I must also preach the truth and it also must be in love. It's the same thing. And I must also be silent, the word used in 1 Timothy 2. I must have a quiet spirit. Now, this the phrase, I won't let a woman have authority, is actually a slang term in Greek. And it's only here. Paul never uses it anywhere else and it doesn't show up in the... Um, in the rest of scripture. Meanings for it are listed in the lexicon for this slang, meaning to dominate, being self-willed, and having arbitrary behavior, an unlawful usurpation of authority. Well, that's not anything like having a woman being a preacher or a teacher or a worship leader. That's that's, there's nothing in that slang phrase that applies to this. Nobody in the church has the right to grab the authority away from somebody else. In our worship, uh, Misha is our worship minister. And she's a very, very kind and, and uh, very talented woman. And yet she sometimes, because she wants to be team player, she'll come to me and say, should I do this song or that song? And if I have an opinion, I'll give it to her. But I will always stress, this is your call. You're in charge here. And I will never take the authority I've given you away from you. See, in our American, Western, European culture, all organizations are stratified somewhere. It starts in a playground. If you don't believe it, just watch a playground. All behavior, all organizations are stratified. In the church, Jesus said that's not the way it's going to be among you. And so when we lead, we do so out of humility, gentleness, love, patience, and never taking away from somebody what is theirs. Here's the thing though, all those preachers I've heard using 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 to build a mythical concept called biblical womanhood. Don't get me started. It is not biblical. It, uh, the, it's big champions are people like John Piper and Wayne Gruden who, um, there's Calvinism there. There's an absolutism of law there and a legalism there. And they push this so hard that women are either silenced and dominated or they leave. I cannot tell you the numbers of emails I've received and heartbreaking talks I've had of women who've left churches saying there's nothing there for me. And they go find a church where they can worship, where they can praise where they can use their talents, or they fade away and we lose their voices. And that's tragic. But none of those men preach 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, right after their beloved section, because it is odd. It, it just is. Paul tries to bring in creation here, which he's allowed to do. 
but this passage, by the way, I'm not saying Paul was odd. What I'm saying is we're so far removed from the situation in Ephesus that Timothy was dealing with and in Corinth that Paul was de dealing with that we read it and go, what? He says, well, because Eve, you know, Adam was created first and Eve sinned first. And so I've read books and listened to the sermon saying it's because of creation order and the order of sin and he brought it into there. Therefore, it is not just a rule for Ephesus because everything was created and sin affects everything. Therefore, this law is for all people at all times. Then what do you do with Paul in the book of Romans when he says more than once, Adam sinned first or through Adam, sin entered the world. And where Adam was the first one to sin, then Christ was the first one to live without sin. That's all through Romans. What, what are you gonna do with that? You, if, if you are trying to use creation order and the order of sin as a, um, an excuse to keep women silent, you got some problems there because that same argument does not transfer well. I've, well. I've seen them do it, but oh my goodness, the amount of work they have to put into that to make it go. Well, it is far more likely Paul's drawing a parallel between Eve's being deceived and the women in that Ephesus congregation being deceived. They'd, they'd been confused, misled by some form of heresy. That's all. And making this passage even more bizarre to our ears, it's what he says next. He goes, women will be saved by childbearing. Let me just ask a question. Is there anybody out there preaching that women have to have babies to be saved? If they're saying they have to be silent, because that passage in the English word that people chose to put in there says silent, and that women aren't to wear the fancy clothes and the like, are you also saying they have to bear children? Well, let me just ask you a few questions about that. Um, what about women who are never get married, never, um, or they're infertile? Uh, maybe they desperately love to have a child, but they can't bear a child because their physiology, the way God made them, will not let them. So are they unsaved? Why is it then that the church for many, many hundreds of years lifted up chastity and no marriage and pure virgin women and pure virgin men as the highest people in the church? Of course, that's the Roman church, but that was the dominant teaching. Why? Well, because they understood that this was a very narrowly focused cultural situation. The balance of scripture could not be plainer. Um, Paul told Titus in chapter, uh, Titus chapter two, to have the older women to teach the younger women. Priscilla is mentioned along with her husband. And although he is mentioned first, the first time you see them, from then on, Priscilla absolutely is listed first or has the dominant position. Uh, there were mentions in Acts chapter 18 of the church in her home. 
she's usually mentioned before her husband. Uh, Yodika and Sendiki uh, are mentioned as Paul's fellow workers, women, side by side with him, uh, Philippians chapter four. And again, in Corinthians, he's told women that they could pray and prophesy. Acts chapter two says that they are to pray and prophesy um, and that that's a fulfillment of scripture. Women are to sing in Colossians three and singing we are told is an act of teaching and admonishing. Women are under the command to sing as well. And we sing many songs written by women. Uh, if Paul was saying that women are never to teach or, or uh, admonish a man, then singing is something a woman would not be allowed to do. And I don't know of anybody who's saying that. Certainly no sane person would say that. Seems the best interpretation of these passages to say that um, the women are not to teach the wrong thing. They're to have a quiet spirit and not grab authority away from others so that they can jerk the church in their direction. I, I don't think that any of us really want to silence women. I would suggest if you want further, um, and I have so many here, but uh, if you want further reading, you uh, go to Bobby Valentine's uh, blog, which, and, and become friends with him on Facebook because he posts a lot of long form posts there and they're worth reading. They really are. By the way, I probably should say this. Um, I've not checked, but if Bobby disagrees with me about anything, um, I'm not, I don't want him to be tarred with me. How about that? I don't want, if he disagrees with me, I don't want to be acting like, um, you know, Bobby and I are, are tracking on all things. I think we probably are, frankly. But he has, um, again, on Facebook, but he also has a blog called Stoned, past tense, Campbell. And so just look up Bobby Valentine, Stoned Campbell, and you'll find his blog. Then look up women. He has comprehensive list of scriptures showing women were in leadership positions and loved throughout scripture. Why then do we grab two passages? One in 1 Timothy 2, which we take nothing in their literal except one partial bit. And then 1 Corinthians 14, where we say this one, this little bit, controls all of the assembly, not the other bits. Why would we do that? Well, I think, it, I think sin, and I think that male domination of culture and of the, the books, power centers, I think that has a lot to do with it. In fact, it's why Junia in scripture is referred to as esteemed among the apostles. A phrase that probably means she was considered an apostle, but if somebody wants to fight with me about that, fair enough. Um, but why her name was arbitrarily changed to a male-sounding name less than 200 years ago. They would put Junius to make it sound male when their Junius was not a name back then. Doesn't show up as a name. And it was done by the translators because this was troublesome to them. There's a wonderful book by Eldon uh, Epp, E-P-P. Just look up Eldon Epp. I think that's the only book he's done. But he traces all of this in every manuscript. And you don't have to be a Greek person, you know, Greek-speaking person. It is 
fascinating and terrifying to see how the changes were made, who made them and when. So have a look. So that's the last bit of this. And next time we'll get on to 1 Corinthians 15, which has a lot in it. All right. And we'll move on from this. But thank you so much for being a part of today. I hope you have a blessed week. If you have questions, if you have needs, please reach out to me at patrick at rsafeharbor.com. Go to us on YouTube, subscribe, hit the bell, follow along. God bless.